Welcome back, everyone, to the Passive Road to Retirement podcast. We're your hosts, Andrew Jarrett and Nick Cooper. Today, we're joined by Jeremy Roll. Jeremy started investing in real estate and businesses in 2002 and left the corporate world in 2007 to become a full-time passive cash flow investor. He's currently an investor with more than 60 opportunities across more than $1 billion worth of real estate and business assets. As founder and president of Rural Investment Group, Jeremy manages over 1,500 investors who seek passive and managed cash-flowing investments in real estate and business. Jeremy has an MBA from the Wharton School and is an advisor for Realty Mogul, the largest real estate crowdfunding website in the United States. Jeremy, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, guys. I appreciate it. Yeah, great to have you on. So if you're cool, if we just kind of dive right in, Jeremy, uh, like to know what what got you started as investing? What was the catalyst to it? Yeah. So um, for those of you who remember who are listening, um, so I uh, was actually working in the corporate world and, and it was 2001, 2002. And I was working at Disney headquarters actually in Los Angeles and we had the dot com crash. And um, really, I was doing pretty much what everybody else was doing who I work with was I was like in my Disney Fidelity 401k plan. And we were doing stocks and bonds and mutual funds and all this stuff. And after I watched the stock market, or especially the NASDAQ, go up and down like 30% in a year or whatever percentage it was, I realized this is just not for me because I'm a really slow and steady guy. I'm all about like having a long-term plan and the volatility, but even more so the lack of predictability really bothered me from a retirement plan perspective for like decades to come. So I went to look at different ways to invest. And I kind of came, uh, I kind of concluded for myself that I could look at more lower risk passive cash flow that would be a better fit for me, more for the predictability and, and reduced volatility than anything. And so I started to try investing in syndications a very early 2002. And, uh, you know, I guess the rest is history at this point, but it's been over, it's been over 20 years. Um, I've been very fortunate. The cash flow got me out of the corporate world back in 2007. Um, and so I'm a full-time passive cash flow investor now. Very nice. Very nice. So you started in 2002, obviously went through 2008. Uh, what was that experience like in the syndication world then? Yeah. And, you know, it's funny because it it was so different than it is now, at least in my world. And it may just be that I have less of a network, but I thought about this very recently. In fact, even this week that, you know, I was going around in 2005 and I was like very young, no kids, not, you know, at that point. And I was like at dinner parties with friends and I'd be like, you know, the housing market's going to crash. And people would look at me like I was absolutely crazy. And I, I, I this went on for like three years. And it was so frustrating because it was just a numbers game to me. And I'm just very quantitative. And so I kind of lived through that. And very luckily, I sidestepped, you know, from a real estate perspective. I have I wasn't in one real estate deal that went bad as a result of that uh, recession because I'm just really conservative. So I was very lucky, but I was also very careful. Right. And I actually really sat on the sidelines for a couple of years. Um, fast forward to today. Um, it's uh, it's very interesting because. Last time, it was very obviously a housing challenge that ended up dominoing into other parts of the economy and the real estate market. This time, as a passive investor in the syndication world, um, it seems to me like the most challenged, there's two different buckets of real challenge. One is the obvious one the media is covering, which is office, a little bit of retail, a lot of vacancy. That's mostly more institutional vacancy in the non-institutional world. A lot of the office buildings are doing okay at the moment anyway. Um, 
But um, nonetheless, that's getting a lot of media attention. The one that isn't getting media attention, but is pretty well known in the non-institutional investor world is apartments and uh, floating rate loans that happened in the last couple of years. And I'm kind and I, I did not invest in one of those deals. And I've been mostly on the sidelines since about 2017. Philosophically, I'm always investing in you know random and, and unique opportunities in challenging times. But the point is that it's really weird for me this time because last time I watched the carnage happen and I just read it all in the media and I didn't know that many people who are really directly impacted. This time I'm very concerned. I know many investors who are in deals that have had cash flow stop, cash calls. Some I, I even know one or two that are already heading back to the bank, unfortunately, which I know is very early on. And <laughs> Um, you know, I, I know, P, P, I mean, I, I've, I've heard a lot of stories. I know people who have actually, the recourse loans, they became like the key person on the recourse loans are going to lose millions of dollars. Uh, it's crazy. They're probably going to go bankrupt. Um, and I'm, I actually know a lot of people who are impacted. And I really feel like I actually feel it more internally this time. I feel very bad. And so I have that that I'm personally witnessing. But I also think that, um, it was just so concentrated in this one asset class because the amount of deals that were done in this asset class in the last two years is going to be interesting to see how it plays out. Hey, everyone. Hope you're enjoying this episode. Are you ready to maximize your real estate investing to its full potential? Join us at Level Up REI Coaching and take your life and business to all new levels. Send an email to nick at leveluprecoach.com. That's nick, N-I-C, at leveluprecoach.com. How do you think most of those um, operators or syndicators got in trouble in the last two years? I I think, um, so I've seen a combination of a few things. One is, um, the most common one is a floating rate loan that either had only one or two years of rate cap, and now they're having a challenge with that, right? Um, the one right. that is a little less common is those who happen to get in last from a timing perspective have the biggest challenge because they had the least amount of runway to create the value out in the planet they had. And they're getting in trouble possibly even earliest because they're not able to necessarily meet the debt coverage ratios that are needed and other covenants that are needed from their lender. Um, and obviously, end of cycle, unfortunately, like that's when the asset prices peak. And so you can also get in trouble by paying the highest price with having short-term debt, which then comes to roost when you have to refinance it, but the valuation isn't there. But I, I think that the one piece of the puzzle that we're missing so far, because it hasn't been enough time, um, and this is my one of my biggest concerns this year, is rents are starting to go down in certain markets. And I think that's going to continue to trend down in those markets, but it's also going to spill over into other markets, especially if we end up in a recession in the second half of the year, which is my base case scenario like thought. And I think that some people are, I, I think a lot of sponsors haven't been through a cycle yet. And I think they're missing the possible reality that rents will go down in multifamily, which they've never seen potentially. Some investors also don't realize that can happen, I think. And then when you have rents going down while expenses are going up during an inflationary period, it is literally a compounded effect. It is a bad situation. So if you invest in a building in January of 2023, and by the end of the year, rents are down, expenses are up, at the exact same cap rate or multiple, your building's worth less, right? And so that's why I'm mostly still on the sidelines. I want to see how that plays out and what happens, because I'm concerned about the last domino which is the uh, net operating income coming down on the buildings and people dealing with stagflation possibly in the economy. Interesting. Do you, I guess, two things. Do you have maybe a timeline you would see that happening? And two, do you think it's possible the Fed would come in and work, do some kind of workout program for these instead of, you know, having them go back? 
Yeah. So I have this big smile on my face because this is my biggest frustration as an investor. I'm a very numbers guy, quantitative guy, and I like using past history to try to extrapolate what may happen in the future just from a probability perspective. And that's how I try to avoid the landmines. So like I talked about before, in 2005 to 2008, I look at affordability and housing. That to me is the key metric of whether we peaked or not. It was like on the charts. And that's really, I didn't even care what any other article I read. That's all I had to know about where we are in the peak of you know the cycle. And this time around, what's much so much more challenging is the Fed and the amount of distortions they're creating by the amount of intervention they've had roughly since 2008 and since that downturn, right? And so um, I everything I'm talking about today is my brain trying to take everything in and determine where we're heading. But the Fed can come in at any time they want and just give you a punch bowl or take it away at their own, you know, at their own. And it really changes the entire party. It really does. Um, and so, yeah, everything. I mean, we could do a 180 with depending on what the Fed does. If the Fed, the Fed could decide to go cut 100 basis points tomorrow and everything would change. Right. And we don't know what's going to happen. Uh, I think that the one thing that's really important to understand from a quantitative perspective, though, is that um, let's put the whole banking crisis aside at the moment. You know, we're, we're recording this in April and we just dealt with some of the banks, you know, SVB and others having major challenges. And it's starting to get a little bit less concerning at this very point in time. I think there's going to be challenges going forward. But um, but the the challenge for the Fed is that if you look historically and you just look at numbers, when you have an inflationary period, two things happen. One is that once you get over 5% statistically, it's very difficult to get down into the 2 or 3% margin. And that typically takes uh, at least three to five years. We've only been at it about 12 to 18 months, right, so far um, in any meaningful way. Um, so that's number one. And keep in mind, number two is that if you take a look at the last two periods of high inflation that we faced in the 20th century, you'll see that we actually don't normally just go back down. It's actually a double, it's a double dip, meaning it goes down and goes back up because they don't fight it enough. And then they get caught. And, and it's because they're wrestling between hurting the economy, employment and everything else too much versus dealing with inflation correctly. And so that's a very big concern of mine is that we may you know, if you look historically, there's a 100% probability we'll have a double dip. I don't know if that's really going to happen, but I'm just saying from those two instances, right? So that's something else to keep in mind. But I also think people really need to understand that inflation is very sticky. And um, I, I anticipate the Fed is going to change its target from 2 to 3% because it's kind of going to have no choice. It's going to make it easier for itself. But I also anticipate that, you know, the way it always works is that it's easiest to get rid of the first half of inflation. You know, you can come down from 9%, to 6%, much more easy than you go from 6% to 3%. So the next three to four months are going to be extremely telling and are going to, you know, we're going to have to see what the Fed is going to do. Are there going to be too much pressure from banks to lower rates at some point, or are they going to have too much pressure from inflation to not lower rates, right? And so it's going to be a really interesting dynamic. Sorry for the long answer, but going back to your point, it, it just, everything is about the Fed right now. That's all it comes down to. I think that's interesting to say about it's, you know, you can lose that almost like losing weight the first 20 pounds and it's that last three or 40 to kind of take <laughs> off that you kind of got to get, got to get out. Um, now it's fascinating how he kind of brought that up. Yeah. And that's just, that's just historically what's happened. Of course, anything can happen in the future, but I just try to go to me, that's the highest probability scenario. So. Well, when I've seen that actually unemployment's pretty strong right now, they're saying unemployment usually doesn't fall until the first rate cut. Is that what you typically see in your research too? Or? Um, so it's actually really fascinating. Unemployment normally um, doesn't start to fall until 18 months after the, the first rate hike. 
Okay, I have a research based on a rate of cut. And so what's fascinating about that is that that, that implies we're not going to see major increases in unemployment until at least September, based on when they started cutting rates a year and a half, about a year ago now. So um, I'm actually, that's more interesting to me than anything. That being said, I have not studied whether if they pivot and then reduce rates, whether that'll impact that or not, you know, versus what they've done in the past and how they've handled rates. So um, I, I think a lot of people also were wondering, why is unemployment okay? Why is unemployment okay? Now, some people believe that the, the numbers and the seasonally adjusted numbers have been fudged, um, and they've just been so outlandish that it kind of agreed to an extent. But you also have to consider the fact that it takes a long time for unemployment to start creeping up. Uh, we haven't seen that yet, really. So um, that's what I'm more focused on. Okay. Uh, so I guess when you're looking at a, at a deal, do you look more at the deal or the sponsor? And if it's a sponsor, what do you look at? How do you vet, how do you vet them? It's a great question. Um, I consider the sponsor the number one factor, the deal, the number two factor. They're very close, though. They're really like, you know, photo finish type of importance. Um, and to me, as far as a sponsor goes, the easiest way I can describe it, because there's a lot of... Um, you know, subjective things I look for are kind of like difficult things to describe, but I'm looking for someone. So there's a thousand ways to invest. None of them are wrong. Everyone has their own, you know, focus. Some people that take more risk than me will make a lot more money than me. For example, I just take a lower risk approach that I'm more comfortable with. And so when you think about that, I'm looking for someone who's conservative, who's looking to underpromise and overdeliver based on conservative projections and um, who has a very similar mindset to me as far as being conservative conservative and the property and the business plan still work in a very conservative approach, right? As far as the projected returns, I'm trying to avoid someone who's very aggressive um, are using very aggressive projections and numbers because they may, which may cause them to under deliver and maybe also have, you know, very aggressive marketing, et cetera. And I, I, I'm concerned about some of those people having such a marketing machine that they won't really care to establish a long-term relationship with me like those other guys, they're just going to move on to the next investor, right? And I've seen both, both cases. Um, and so in that child, that's what I'm looking for. But of course, I'm always looking for someone who's experienced. I try to find someone who focuses on one asset class, preferably two at the most. Um, and um, obviously, you want to look at a track record, et cetera. I think one thing that's very tricky right now for me personally is, you know, we, we had the longest um, uh, upturn, so to speak, or non-recessionary period, I think ever in the U.S. And that was because of stimulus that went in actually by Trump in 2018 that then, um, you know, increased the, the length of, of the cycle along with the, the stimulus and the pandemic. And so it like even, you could argue that someone who's been investing for 10 years is a highly experienced sponsor. I, I actually wouldn't, dis wouldn't uh, disagree. The problem is that they haven't been through a cycle. They haven't been through reduction in rents. And so what I'm trying to grapple with now is when I'm ready to actually pivot myself and actually get back into regular market rate deals, um, how much credence do I give on 10 years of experience when someone hasn't dealt with the reduction in rents and those types of uh, that types of distress? Um, and then on a flip side, you can argue that someone who has dealt with the pandemic and all the ups and downs that came with that accelerated their experience and got more experience than someone who just you know invested for two years in an easier time. So I'm trying to sort that all out for myself, but the experience piece is very important for sure. Um, there's a, there's a bunch of other factors, but um, those are some of the most important ones. No, I think it's it's a great point in bringing up almost like the the saying that the success can be a horrible teacher. So <laughs> if you haven't gotten punched in the face, like I think it was, was an interview with Robert Kiyosaki. He was saying he first thing he asked a lot of and people he invest with is like, have you ever lost money? Right. 
So a lot of people like their biggest thing is like, no, I've never, I've had all good deals. I'm like, well, probably been through a cycle, like you said, or something interesting. So yeah, it's, it's a good point. Yeah. And the cap rate compression that we saw here, especially uh, since about 2015, 16, 17, um, it depends on the asset class, mind you, but still just overall had just, you know, there are some deals that I did very well in between 13 and 18, just because we got the cap rate compression, even though the operational execution wasn't great. Right. And, mm-hmm. and there is something to market timing and being an investor and trying to get that right. But there's also something to the operator looking good as a result of, you know, overachieving IRR by 50% because they got market timing right, but didn't execute well. So it, you have to really be careful when you're trying to figure out who to invest with right now. Yeah. Rising tide lifts all boats, right? <laughs> Absolutely. Did you have during uh, the pandemic, did you have operators stop distributions? Um, I'm trying to think cause I'm in so many deals uh, and I spoke to, I've spoken to so many people, especially boy, at that time I was having so many calls with investors trying to figure out what is going on and where this is going to head. I remember it very, very well. Um, I must, I must have, I believe, I feel like I've read the quarterly reports with some of the distribution the stopping. Um, it for sure. I must have, cause it, it, it seems familiar. Um, so yes, I must've had some, it was, it was a minority of what I was dealing with though. It wasn't a major cash flow challenge for me. Okay. So how did you to kind of change and shifting gears here a bit? How did you go from being, you know, $1 million investor to the 10 up to the hundred million and beyond? Like what was the, what was the shift for you? Yeah. And so I want to clarify. So, you know, you're talking about when you read in my bio, correct? Yeah. Yeah. So, um, I am invested in th- that number used over a billion is just the total assets of what the assets are worth that I'm invested in. But I'm also right. a tiny piece of those bigger deals, right? And and to be totally honest with you, a lot of that value is actually from non. I do 99% more lowest passive, more predictable cash flowing. A lot of which is real estate, but not all of it. One percent startups. When I have to just make a bet on somebody, I'm not looking for startups. I'm not looking at random startup deals. I'm not part of any venture associations or you know any networking. And so, um, I mean, I can tell you, I've invested in startups that are, you know, a couple of them that are worth over a billion dollars right now. And so I use the 1 billion number actually is low. Um, but, um, you know, the, so I'm just a tiny piece of some of those deals, not to confuse anybody. Um, I'm a very, but, but along those lines though, I'm a very big fan of diversification. I consider myself kind of hyper-diversified and honestly over-diversified. If I just look at it objectively, it just kind of happens as you're investing for so many years. Um, cause I'm in over 60 active opportunities right now. I've been in over 150 to 200 over the past 20 plus years. And, um, that to me is like the bigger piece is like what happens over time is compounding of your, um, you know, your equity, which is huge and fantastic. And I've personally witnessed it. I was talking to someone about this yesterday. Um, but it also happens is that you get to meet so many more operators, investors who are investing people, all these things that, and you get to learn about asset classes over time. And then you end up diversified across so many things. And if you like business and fascinated by business like I am, it's just so fascinating to watch all these different asset classes. So that to me is a bigger piece of diversification. And I tell everybody too, that as a passive investor, I consider myself trading control for diversification. So I trade control as a trade-off and, and in some cases benefit. Um, and then, but I get diversification across asset class geographies and operators. And so I feel like it's also I'm on a mission to get diversification across asset classes, geography and operators, because if I don't achieve that, I have more risk because I'm giving someone control. So I'm also increasing my risk if I don't diversify out of that properly. I can reduce my risk if I diversify properly within it. So that's what I focus on a lot is diversification across a lot of different assets. 
Because the... I, I wrote that down. <laughs> I like that control. Train that for diversification. So that was that was good. Yeah. Do the uh, real estate and business cycle kind of run corollarily, or you know, when multifamily maybe pulls back a little bit, are you looking at more business opportunities, or how does that fluctuate? Yeah, you know, it's funny. I am. Um... I focus mostly on the economy to understand what is going on. But God, there's a there's a very big question you ask because we could talk about businesses, private, public, those valuations, which change on a different pace, right? Mm -hmm. Public valuations change immediately. Like you're watching a stock market go three percent down three percent in a month. Private startup valuations don't change nearly that quickly. Real estate goes the slowest of all of those, right? And so it's interesting because the most important piece to me is the economy to understand where things are heading and how what I'm investing in may be impacted and trying to avoid the landmines. Also, um, I look at uh, consumer trends in general. So really good example. Um, I learned from an operator um, a number of years ago that I should be focused on nine foot ceilings rather than eight foot ceilings and apartments. And th that's, that's only for the purpose of like, okay, I want to invest in a, a true class B or B plus apartment today. Um, is that going to be a class B or B plus apartment in 10 years if I exit, if I'm on a longer term loan, which is typically is what I focus on longer term opportunities. And mm -hmm. so um, you have to think about consumer trends and like that kind of became a thing. And at one point I pivoted and said, I'm not doing any more eight foot ceilings because in 10 years, if I want this to still be a class B asset, um, it's probably going to have to have a nine foot ceiling because that's more in demand from younger people, as an example. So those types of trends are very important. Um, looking at that from an internet trend, how did you avoid, you know, not getting hit by the best buys of the world, closing or, or downsizing or all those types of things? You have to think way ahead. And one of the things I feel like investors don't do, and, and as a passive investor, unfortunately, I think they look at this business plan and it always looks good because someone's justifying why they're buying something. But I don't think they're formulating their own opinion about where everything's going, the economy is going, the trends and everything else. So anyway, that was a side point. Getting back to your question. So um, I... Um, I try to avoid landmines in those different buckets you mentioned, investing in companies, investing in public private companies, as well as um, the real estate, depending on the economy's number one and how it's going to impact it. Number two is you have to watch their own cycles, right? Just like we talked about real estate's going through a very slow adjustment because that's what it does. The stock market's already gone through a big adjustment and may have a second. We'll have to see. The private markets went through a huge adjustment evaluation in the past 12 months. And I think that's it. They're going through one adjustment and, and that's probably going to be it. We'll see. Um, so it's, it depends on exactly what you're focused on. It really has to vary. Hmm. Okay. Makes sense. Makes sense. What, um, what's a typical day for a Jeremy role, you know, being a passive huh. investor, I guess <laughs> you're looking at a lot of OMS or, you know, what, what's your day like? Yeah. Well, yes, I am on many mailing lists. I look at a lot of deals. I, I find that um, passive investing is a team sport. So I, I do as much networking as I can. So just to find new operators, new opportunities, opinions about from, from different investors about the sponsors they've been with, how it's gone. Um, I, you know, I do, I think that one of the most important things I do for myself to protect myself as far as trying to anticipate the future and watching out for the landmines is I do probably a good two to three hours of reading a day. Most of it happens right at the beginning of the day and at the end of the day, from an economic perspective to really try to internalize what is going on and where are we heading. Uh, clearly that's even more important right now than it would be in the middle of a nice cycle. Uh, but um, that's one of my key, key things, which I, I know a lot of people don't have that amount of time to do, but because I'm full-time, it's part of my day. It's a part of my job, you know, to, be, to, to watch out for myself. 
Um, so a lot of networking with investors, sponsors, looking at deals and staying on top of the news. Th those are the most common things that I'm doing. Yep. Makes sense. So what's your, your favorite asset class going into this uncertain time? Or do you have a favorite? Uh, um, I have a couple of favorite asset classes, what I call for the next 10 years. Okay. I don't like any of them right now because I don't like valuations on anything. Right. So, and I'm, you're referring to real estate, I'm assuming, right? Sure. Or you can do real estate or, or, you know, it's, it's open to you. Sure. Um, so on the real estate, I'll, I'll touch upon one that's not real estate, but on the real estate side, um, I look for predictable passive cash flow, And what I'm trying to find is predictable, um, ongoing demand that's uh, consistent for many years. Right. So my favorite asset classes for the next 10 years, based on what I think are going to be continued demand are apartments, mobile home parks, and self-storage, right? There's some others for sure. But to me, those are the three obvious that I think will be in continued demand if you're with the right sponsor, always in the right location with the right type of asset. Um, now, I'm concerned, for example, about office, retail. Those are difficult as far as predictability. Where are they going to head? How are offices going to be used in the next five, 10 years? Not very obvious. How is retail going to be used in the next five, 10 years? A little more obvious than, than office in many locations, but not 100% obvious, right? With a lot of things still transitioning online. Um, and um, you take a look at uh, senior housing. I, I really love the concept of senior housing based off the proje projected demand for the next 10 to 20 years. What's still unclear is COVID had a huge impact. I'm in, I'm in some senior housing deals, but COVID had a huge impact on the health of some of those people. Occupancy rates, we're having labor shortages and staffing challenges. So that that is very unclear in the next few years, probably in uh, more clarity in five to 10 year timeline out further out. Um, so I'm really trying to focus in on what are the most obvious predictable asset classes. Those are the ones that come to mind, but I, I always consider mm -hmm. all of them. There's always unique opportunities out there. On the non-real estate side, what, um, and by the way, I didn't mention, I think single, single family houses are going to be also a great play in the long run, just based off of continued demand on the rental side. But again, it's got to be the right markets with the right operator, et cetera. And I will be looking at those for sure. Um, on the non-real estate side, um, probably immediately one of my favorite asset classes of all time is I've been investing in uh, ATM machines since 2008. Those are those little private machines you see at the nail salon or the barbershop or wherever it's going to be that's not a bank branded machine. And, um, you know, there's a three or four dollar surcharge, two dollars in New York. It depends on the area. I, I've done extremely well with ATM investing since 2008. And I, I, I actually did fairly well with it during the last economic downturn in 2008-9. And so I'm pretty confident it'll do well during a recession. I continue to con invest in that um, particular non-real estate asset class. Hmm. That's a good answer. I'm surprised you didn't mention anything about industrial at all. So it's funny. Um, I have, so here's the challenge with me of industrial. I actually started off by investing in a whole bunch of office retail and industrial deals when I first, first started. And I did fairly well in them. Um, but the challenge with industrial for me has always been a lack of tenant diversification. So I'm a huge fan of diversification and I like to have a lot of tenant diversification just to reduce the risk further. And it's hard to find a proper industrial park with many tenants or even an industrial space that's carved up into 13, 15 tenants. Sometimes you can kind of get business industrial type of asset class that okay. has that with a lot of small businesses, but then it's very hard to project how those businesses are going to do if they're smaller businesses. And so um, in the right timing of the market, I'll probably look at a more diversified industrial property. I'll tell you what I'm concerned about right now with industrial. Depends on the location, but because of the enormous amount of demand that occurred in the last two years as a result of all the money printing, there was a lot of growth in the demand for storage space or for warehouse space, okay? Because a lot of goods came into the country. So 
Um, long story short is that that stimulus is now ending. It's probably all going to be gone from consumers' pockets by the end of the year, if not by this fall, for the most part. And um, there's an argument to be made that vacancy rates are going to go up in the warehouse space because you kind of had peak warehouse need last year, right? And so mm -hmm. I think it's a little bit dangerous to, to be looking at that space right now. But I got to be honest, I'm not well qualified to give a really good opinion because I don't track it very much because it doesn't conform to what it typically look like with the diversified tenant base typically. No, thanks. That was a good perspective. I never thought of any of those things. Yeah, that was interesting. What, um, so you've done a lot of different deals, obviously, and a lot of different asset classes. What's one deal that stands out that didn't go right? And what were the lessons learned from that deal? Yeah, I have a fascinating deal, actually, I was in. It was the only foreclosure I've actually ever been in, I think. And um, it was actually in 2012. So um, very, this is a great story. It's going to take a minute. But so okay. I invested in, in January of 2008. I was convinced we we're going to have a recession. We talked about that before. I've been on the sidelines since 05, waiting for everything to just happen, especially on the single family side. And plus, we were in end of cycle economically. And I was... I looked at the senior housing deal and I said, you know what? Um, cap rate's good. Operator owns 17 other properties, very experienced. First property across from a state university. And what happens when you have a recession? People go back to school, right? At least in normal times back then when it was affordable, <laughs> people go back to school, can't get a job. This is the time to go back to school. It's time to go to school instead of try to not go to school. So my theory was we were going to be 100% occupied the whole time. This was 100% occupied building, fantastic location. So one key to this is that we actually assumed a loan that had several years term left on it. And normally I invest in more of a 10 year type of term, but this was just a great, it became a great deal because of the loan assumption and interest rate at the time and everything else, right? So I go into it getting great cash flow. We're 100% occupied 2008, 9, 10, 11, even 12. Everything works out perfectly according to the thesis, thankfully. So January of 2012, um, all of the tenants as well as the owner um, or the sponsor gets a letter from the city that says, look, we have to close the bridge to campus this summer to do repairs because of the cold weather in this climate we're in Michigan. And, uh, but don't worry, bridge is going to be open by the time you go back to school in the fall. Okay. Cause this is how people got to school. So that letter started to concern residents. Is they really going to get it done in time? Or am I going to be able to go to school? What happens if I can't? So we literally went from 100% or just, you know, 99, 100% occupied just 65% occupied by the fall season because people were scared to be in the building. And it just so happened. So that was domino number one, right? It just so happened that the loan was due that fall. So to go to refi the loan based off of that net operating income was not working. So that was domino number two. Domino number three was that rather than extend the loan for a year and actually say, okay, this building is going to be 100% occupied a year from now, right? Most likely. The bank said, no, no, we want the property. It's a great deal for us, which is actually really unusual. So they they wouldn't extend the loan and the property went to foreclosure. And um, so, which, you know, funny enough, that was my one foreclosure of the 2008 downfall, but it wasn't from that at all, right? So um, what's fascinating is that the sponsor who mostly owned those other buildings themselves, all, like with no investors, felt really bad for the investors. They actually had a partial recourse loan. So they lost a few million from that. They had their own, a lot large portion of the equity. Um, they felt really bad for the investors. So what they did for us, which, completely un unrequired from a legal perspective is they actually transferred us from that property to equity. They gave us equity in a property they owned uh, without any investors. That was another first 
property across from a state university in Texas, another great location, another great school, another 100% occupied property. So that transition took about a year from a legal perspective. Also from a cash flow perspective, I had no cash flow for about a year. And I'm actually still on that deal today. And it's still doing, in fact, I just got my quarterly check. I think it was last week. Um, and so it was just tremendous learning from many. Let me just summarize the learnings because there's a few, right? Um, so number one is, I always tell people, I can give you 20 ways any deal can go wrong, no matter how good it looks, just the random things. There's a fire, insurance doesn't pay, you sue them, it takes four years in court, you lose. Whatever it is, I can literally give you any scenario you want, right? So there's always these 1% risks for investors, no matter what, you cannot avoid them. That's why the diversification is so key. Number two is um, that um, who you're making a bet on can often be more important than the property itself. And this is literally the epitome of an example, right? Um, they had no legal requirement. They could have just said, sorry, we had no idea this was going to happen. You know, we just, we're, we're all taking a loss. Let's move on with our lives. And it would have been frankly, perfectly reasonable, right? Um, given the scenario, but they felt really bad. And they, and so not only were they motivated to help investors just with their mindset, but they actually had the wealth to do so, which is really fascinating because that's, that's another lesson is that I've seen deals that may have required a cash call if it wasn't for the fact that the operator had a million dollars out of their own personal pocket to just give a temporary loan, right? Mm -hmm. And so, you know, all things being equal, sometimes it's actually better to be invested with a wealthier sponsor than not when you when you have that choice, okay? Um, and in this case, the sponsor had an interest in trying to help people, were willing to come out of their own pocket and had the equity in another deal, and that's what happened. So I got very lucky, but I also got lucky as a result of making a bet on the right person. So a lot of really interesting, uh, you know, lessons from that story took a little, but it's a very unique uh, story. No, that's a fascinating story. And like you said, it definitely speaks volumes of vetting the operators correctly in the first place, because, yeah, they didn't have to do that, like you said. Yeah. And you'll invest with them again, like wherever you would probably go invest with that, that operator again. Absolutely. Um, and But I, I would tell people, like, I don't think I don't use that as part of my vetting process today. Like if this property gets foreclosed, are you going to transfer? You know, I don't think it's a reasonable question to ask, right? It just trying to make a bet on good people. That's really all it comes down to. Yeah, makes sense. Well, I got one more question for you and then uh, we'll get into our five to thrive. But first, how do people reach out to you? Yeah, absolutely. Everyone's welcome to reach out to me. Um, if you're a new investor and just are curious to know how the space works, I'm just happy to have a call. It's no problem. Um, if you're a more experienced investor and want to network or even a sponsor want to network or another investor group and want to network, don't, re don't hesitate to reach out to me. My email is the easiest way, which is jroll. J-R-O-L-L -L at Roll Investments, R-O-L-L -L Investments with an S.com. So J-Roll at Roll Investments.com. Okay, great. Cool. And last question is, so if you could step into our shoes for the interview, what's one question you would ask our, yourself that we didn't ask you? That's a great question. I've never heard that before. And I've been on probably over 150 podcasts. Um, I would say, um, I don't think we touched upon this directly, but um, I guess you could have asked me, what's my take on the, the current macroeconomic situation? But I realize that's not directly uh, aligned with real estate. So another question you could ask me is, what are you hearing from other investors? What is the investor community, the past investor side, actually talking about and worried about right now? And frankly, I don't think I've ever heard that question from anybody either. So um, those are just some things coming to mind. Okay. Oh, let's see. That being said, what would the uh, the second one be? Yeah, <laughs> yeah well, the, the, the big talk on investors right now is a combination of where are we heading and is this a good time to invest in combination with what's going to happen to the multifamily buildings I just invested in, right? Th this is a huge challenge. And it's my biggest concern right now is that I, if, if I had to guess, 
over 90% of the opportunities I received in the last two years were multifamily value add with floating rate loans. Okay. That's just what it was. So anybody who's brand new, who invested in the last two years, almost certainly invested in one or more of those. Right. And anybody who's new in the last four years, which is a lot of people, a lot of money came in end of cycle. Right. And then a lot of money came in pandemic is also almost certainly invested in those unless they decide to stop investing for two years. Right. And so I'm really concerned about the likelihood or possibility of a lot of investors leaving this space because if they're if they're exposed to a business plan saying, look, this is a pretty low risk deal. We're going to add some value. The rents are this, that, you know, blah, blah, blah. And they're going in with kind of a lower risk mindset or kind of low to medium risk mindset where the probability of them stopping cash flow is very low, cash call is very low, and losing money is very low as far as probabilities. But that's all possibly happening to them right now. If you're them, are you going to continue investing in this space? Or are you going to walk and go back to stocks, right, or something else? And I have a feeling a lot of them are going to do that. And so I'm concerned that it's going to be, it's already become more challenging uh, for sponsors to find investors. And that always happens in a downturn. But I think the concentration of what happened in those asset cl- in that asset class this time may make the result here even more difficult for sponsors to raise capital exactly at the right time when deals are good um, going into, you know, how this whole uh, end of cycle unfolds. So we'll have to see. Great, Great answer. Point. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Uh, so our five to thrive. So this is a word association game. So I'm just going to rattle off five words. Just give us back the first word or phrase that comes to mind. The only caveat is you cannot repeat your answer. Ah, okay. All right. So the first one is passive cash flow investor. Patient. Syndication. Um. Passive. Risk. Reward. (laughs) Market cycle. Very important. And crowdfunding. Uh, Good fit for the right person. I like it. Well, Jeremy, thanks so much for coming on. It's been a wealth of knowledge and we really appreciate your time. It was a lot of fun. Absolutely, guys. Thanks for having me on. I really appreciate everyone who's listened to this whole thing. and I just hope it was helpful for your listeners. So thank you. Was. Thank you.